This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, this is Beyond Zero Emissions Community. In tonight's episode, we are trying to bring you three pieces, which is going to be a fairly tight fit. They're a little bit cheek by jowl. First up is one of the nine podcasts produced by The Guardian UK on the biggest story in the world. We're playing you episode two, where The Guardian team decides what angle they will choose to get the most bang for their buck in running the biggest story in the world, which is Editor-in-Chief Alan Rusbridge's Swan Song. Then we play a piece courtesy of ABC RN from Natasha Mitchell's excellent Life Matters show. Natasha interviews Tristan Edis, editor of The Climate Spectator and Kane Thornton, CEO of Clean Energy Council, in relation to the startling and potentially game-changing announcement by Tesla recently about their new battery, the Powerwall. Lastly, we have Beth Shepherd bringing you her last interview from the recent Climart exhibition in Melbourne, an interview with Laura Lantieri. But sit back and listen to episode two of The Guardian's Biggest Story in the World. This is the biggest story in the world. It's clearly the most important story. From The Guardian. And yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. It's defeated journalism for almost two decades. We carry on flogging a load of dead horses in exactly the same way and it doesn't work. And if we ignore this story... We are going to kill ourselves. Last week, the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, laid out his legacy project, Climate Change. What can you do that lifts this beyond something that people are bored of reading about? What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention? With only six months, though, can the team step up to the challenge? This week... Alan gathers his team for a brainstorming session on the lurid yellow sofas of the morning conference room. About 30 people sitting awkwardly low, handpicked by Alan. Uh, Thank you for those of you who did respond over Christmas. Um, I was literally sitting in an armchair on Christmas Eve and pinged out this email, um, and I wasn't necessarily expecting you all to respond over Christmas, but lots of you did, and thank you for doing that. So what, what... I want to talk about is not what kind of environmental coverage we can do over the next two or three years. I'm being very selfish and I'm just thinking about what kind of environmental coverage we can do in the next six months in a highly intensive way. It would be sort of... It was very much an exploratory meeting. It's like, you know, here's a bloody great big subject. Which bit of it are we going to focus on? You start this debate and you go into all kinds of interesting rabbit warrens. At that point, I think bets are off, so it's pretty broad. In, in which X says Y and B says Z. At that point, it was kind of like, you know, anything's on the table. And someone else says you can't possibly consider Z without considering X. Scoping, for want of a better word. So what is the most focused proposition that we can develop and what, what would we call it? Alan explained how he got the idea when he met the US climate campaigner Bill McKibben in Sweden and asked him the question... What could we do most uh, effectively? And he had a very clear and focused idea. You need to keep it in the ground because... The fossil fuel companies of the world, uh, the Exxons and the Shells, 
have in their proven reserves someplace between three and five times as much carbon as scientists say will take us past the two degree mark that the world's governments have agreed is the absolute final utter red line, don't cross this threshold for disastrous climate change. And his urgently was, this stuff has to be kept in the ground. Alan knew what he wanted to do, he just didn't know how. As an editor, you sit in your office, you, you don't go out, you don't talk a lot to people, so you're very reliant on your team. Thanks very much, Alan. It's not just that the language is, is, is stultifying and technocratic and boring. It also completely fails to capture what we're looking at here. I mean, George Monbiot is a brilliant polemicist. I mean, even the word climate change. And activist. It's a bit like calling a, a, a bomb an unexpected delivery or, or, or an invading army um, uh, unwanted visitors. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's such a neutral defanged term for what we're facing, which is climate breakdown, which is catastrophic failure of the system which has permitted civilization to persist. He's always a, a grit in the oyster. He is not shy about taking difficult positions. It's alienating, it's cold, it's technological. It, it also has no emotional content. It doesn't really mobilize people. He's a one-man powerhouse. <laughs> Standing center stage with his colleagues before him, the giant video screen behind, George lays out the kernel of his argument, that we need to reconsider who is to blame. Uh, well, I, I'm very strongly of the opinion that the great and obvious gap here is the producer side of the equation. And it's an amazing thing that in almost every other aspect, every other environmental crisis we face, governments try to deal with both the production and the consumption of the good which is, which is in the frame. So, for instance, if you're trying to protect rhinos, you don't just go after the people who are consuming the rhino horn, you actually try to stop the poaching as well. If you're trying to protect fish stocks, you don't just try to persuade consumers to eat less fish, you set a quota for the amount of fish that can be taken. There's no other international issue where we try to affect it only at the demand end. And it's uniquely crazy to take that position where fossil fuels are concerned because that means you have to affect the cons consumer behaviour of 7 billion people rather than just the operations of a few thousand corporations which are taking the stuff out of the ground. Uh, and I think the parallel is a fair one with the tobacco industry where it knew for a long time the science became very, very clear that tobacco caused cancer and people should not smoke. Uh, and they fought to keep that from the public, to sow doubt and confusion over it for as long as possible to protect their profits. I think that's where the fossil fuel companies are now. Ah, oil firms have to be made the pariahs of the world. They have to be stigmatised. They have to be reduced in their stature. So they've got their bad guys. Now what do they do with them? That's a very big question, and one that's taxed finer minds than mine, but I'll give it a go. Um... To the rescue, the fine mind of George Monbiot. He suggests a global political solution. First, there has to be a global recognition of the issue. Then? You have, a, have to have a global agreement that we will decide to leave two-thirds or more. In the ground. So, for George in practice, that means you need to... Set up probably a global auction system which would reflect the carbon density of, of those fuels. So allow however many million tonnes of fossil fuels to be extracted and then auction those off. An auction system that will hit the wallets of the producers. And that's a free market economic solution. Limit what's coming out and let the producers fight with cold hard cash over what's left. It should appeal to the right-wing capitalists as much as it does to the left-wing Greens like myself. It's an idea which needs political consensus and global action. If we want to change the world, and I think this is why Alan has brought us together today, then we've got to actually deploy the measures which are going to change the world. And that's only going to happen through acting at the political level to lay down regulations which say those fossil fuels are going to stay in the ground. Everything else is prodding around on the edges of the problem and not actually grasping that problem. A global political solution makes intellectual sense, but it's not a done deal. 
Some people would say it's optimistic for The Guardian, possibly even a tad arrogant, to think they can enact this kind of change in just six months. Think about what they're up against. There are at least three obstacles. First, the fossil fuel lobby is very big, very rich, very well connected and very determined to carry on in the way that it has for the last 150 years. Especially in the US where there's both a lot of carbon and also a great deal of corporate lobbying. The oil and gas sector alone donated 70 million to US candidates and political parties in 2012. And then you've got 13 million in donations from the coal mining, another 18 million in lobbying from the coal mining sector. So you've got hundreds of millions of dollars, probably about a billion a year overall, on US companies trying to persuade policymakers not to act in a way that would significantly harm fossil fuel interests. That's $1 billion a year that the fossil fuel industry spends to protect their interests. And that's just in the US. On top of all that, this isn't just a question of getting the big companies like Exxon, BP and Shell to sign up to a global agreement, because second... The majority are actually owned by states. Um, Andrew, James, Stewart, Anne. Quite a lot of the, there's quite a lot of crossover between ownership and, and government. I mean, Russia owns most of the resources that are underground. Changing Putin's view in the next 12 months is going to be a bit of a hard, hard one. Something in the region of 90% of all the oil and gas is owned by countries, not by companies. I mean, you know, how does one persuade Saudi Arabia to change its policy on oil? You know, this is a very difficult question. A mammoth task politically. And we don't have a Saudi Arabia office yet. Now, these kinds of agreements are usually forged at international summits in places like Kyoto or Copenhagen. And at the end of this year, more talking. In Paris, which George thinks is a good target for The Guardian to pick. So it, it seems clear that an effective and simple demand of the kind that The Guardian could make gets into the Paris Agreement, that there is at least an outline agreement to start looking at keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Makes sense. But here's our third problem. The likelihood of making any progress at any international summit is... Minimal. Minimal. I mean, it, it, we, we, we will not get any agreement which gives us any hope of globally reducing emissions by more than a percent or two over the next decade. We have to understand the, summit, the summits are rigged. Um, it's a fiendishly complex process. We have been discussing our global agreements on climate change for more than 20 years now. And so far, the progress has been limited. However, there are reasons to be cheerful about Paris because three of the world's largest emitting blocks have now agreed to limit their greenhouse gas emissions. These commitments are not in themselves enough to put the world on a pathway to two degrees. However, they are a start. The summits are fiendishly complex. The majority of the world's fossil fuel is held by states, and the companies that own the rest hold enormous political sway. Is there any hope for the political solution, or do we need another angle? What does the gaffer think? George's point that real action is going to come about through governments and through uh, treaties, that may be right but it may simultaneously be right that in order to get anybody in the world interested in this, you have to do something uh, more out of the ordinary. Time to take stock. This meeting was meant to find a new way of telling the story. And the biggest question Alan's team need to answer is... What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention? For perhaps the first time. Global agreements, carbon auctions, summits, none of these sound very new. Outside the glass walls of the Guardian meeting room, across the pond to the States, Alan's climate guru, Bill McKibben, has been thinking about this too. A generation ago, when the biggest moral issue in the world was apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu suggested this tactic, that it was time for the great institutions of the West to cut their economic ties with companies that propped up the apartheid regime. Democratic 
and free society. If there's ever going to be any kind of international agreement, it'll only be because our political and business leaders are feeling unrelenting pressure from all over the world. This is not a normal movement. There are no great leaders. There's no Dr. King of the climate movement or whatever. The fossil fuel industry is sprawling. It's uh, protean. Uh, and so the resistance to it needs to be the same way. It needs to be like the French resistance during the war, you know, springing up from every corner. And that's why we organize all over the world. Uh, we've organized at 350.org about 20,000 different demonstrations in every country save North Korea. Back in Guardian Towers, some of the staff agree. Um, the campaign element of it gives people some agency and gives people some ownership and that they can sort of touch. In the corner of the room, arguing for a popular people's movement, stands James Randerson. I like to try and make things work. James Randerson has a doctorate in physics, I think. Evolutionary genetics, actually, Alan. But never mind. He's a very sort of thoughtful, conscientious journalist, I think, who cares about getting things right. If I'm honest, I prefer practical solutions over pie-in-the-sky ideology, if you like. Um, uh, I, I mean, actually, in six months, we can ask for something to happen at Paris, but we won't see a result. My worry about having an, an ask, which is along the lines of at Paris, they should set up uh, an auction scheme that will do X, Y, and Z. I think that rapidly gets quite kind of distant and complicated. And while, it, while it, something like that probably has to happen, in terms of a tangible campaign that people can feel part of and can sign up to and, and want to, uh, you know, uh, want to support, I'm not sure that that, uh, that sort of is sexy enough. This popular people's movement that both Bill and James are talking about is sexily called divestment. Divestment is a, is a very simple idea. The idea that you just take your money away from companies that are involved in extracting fossil fuels. You do that by refusing to buy their shares. It says we do not accept your premise, we do not like what you're doing. It's a way of applying pressure. For moral and economic reasons. If it turns out that the world decides collectively that we are going to stick to the two degrees and we're going to leave all of that carbon in the ground. That presents a major issue for companies like Shell and BP and so on because the market is implicitly assuming that they're going to dig up and sell. Then their valuation now is much higher than it should be. It's a risky investment because we know if we do solve climate change, those assets will be worthless. Hold on. don't know about you, but I don't really have any shares. Neither do I, but... We all have stakes in pension funds, in various forms of investment through our lives, and those investments will almost certainly include shares in fossil fuel companies. That's the exciting part. The change isn't a technological change. It's not scientific change we need. It is now social change. It's right, so let's just discuss that for a bit. One by one, voices join James's divestment movement. And so in my mind, the powerful thing about divestment is that it, it is about delegitimising these businesses. I mean, you know, you cycle through London, you see posters for Shell with sleeping children saying, power the world, you know? And I think the fossil fuel subsidies, I mean, 700 billion a year uh, subsidising consumption, 90 billion subsidising exploration. So 90 billion a year of taxpayers' money is looking for more fossil fuels we can't have. And that, 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 that's so obvious and makes, should make people so angry. It feels like we've identified the baddies, but I don't think, I don't think they've been delegitimised. One, one, one of you, make your mind up. Well, I think it depends a bit who we're aiming at, isn't it? And I think one of the things that we have the power to do with, with our reach is to sound the wake-up call for all the people who haven't woken up or who feel fatalistic about it. Felicity Lawrence pipes up from the yellow sofa. She's well known for her writing on food. But has a very interesting take on corporate responsibility and sustainability. I think the thing about divestment is that it provides a really powerful moral framework that people can, can get behind. And it's a way of applying pressure to... Uh, to, to where the power resides uh, and with all these campaigning kinds of journalism your role as a journalist is to try and hold power to account uh, so how do you make things uncomfortable for them and you need some sort of focus for that 
And I think the divestment idea provides that way of prodding in a very uncomfortable way that makes a difference. But not all in the room agree. Is campaigning what journalism does best? Should promoting divestment be the Guardian's role? Jonathan's got his hand out at the back, so let's just... Well, I think that before our power as an institution when it comes to changing the shape of some discourse is the questions we ask and not the answers we provide. Pragmatically, if you want to do a classic newspaper campaign where we wave around, make people feel good, and get something that looks quite concrete, divestment is great. It doesn't actually change the balance sheets of the companies, and it doesn't really... It will do very little, even if it's unimaginably successful, to keep it in the ground. If we had a big success in divestment, we might knock down the, the price of a couple of oil companies, at which point for any fund which isn't making our moral choice, they'll get a better return by buying it. So we actually, we make ourselves poorer. Can I... Can I it doesn't change the value of what's in the ground. It doesn't stop them extracting oil. And it means amoral investors get richer and moral investors get poorer. Um, I'm just going to get George to say something, then I'm going to try and see whether we can just sum up. Uh, I think it comes down to whether we intend to change things or whether we intend to be seen to change things. And I completely take the point that Damien and others have made about removing the moral legitimacy from companies and that the divestment plans help that. But you know you're being effective when you get these governments saying, absolutely not, you total bastards, you are the people who tried to stop us obtaining our objectives. They're not saying that about divestment because divestment is not that politically scary because it's not actually going to change anything in the long run. It's not, as James says, going to leave fossil fuels in the ground. It's just going to bring in a whole new, new lot of amoral investors who are going to fill the gap which has been left. Who else is going to do what The Guardian is perhaps uniquely equipped to do? Who else is going to not let the politicians off the hook? Who else is going to make this a, a political, democratic issue as opposed to a consumerist issue? If we want to actually stop climate breakdown rather than just do something symbolic and showy and demonstrates that the Guardian are really good eggs and that they, they're people with the right values, if we want to actually change the world, that surely has got to be the focus. The journalists stream out of the morning conference room, leaving two options on the table. Does the Guardian go for the big global picture, as George proposes, try and intervene in politics and influence international policy? Or does it go for James and Bill's divestment idea and become a campaigner, a paper with an agenda? Well, I've always been slightly nervous about campaigning. We, we, we have done some campaigns on The Guardian, but, but generally in the past I've wanted to reserve campaigns for things where there is no legitimate cause for discussion. I'm really nervous about the idea of us having a campaign in which we write all the answers and produce the solutions, because I don't think we can, and I'm not even sure that's our role. Our campaigning role is to report in a way that shocks people, wakes them up, tells them things they don't know. The staff are divided, and someone needs to pick. Um, I mean, there was a point at which I felt that Alan had basically decided on something and was, you know, my feeling was, you know, perhaps we're going to have a discussion that will be kind of window dressing, you know, um, or, he would, or he would basically persuade us all that why we're... Um, wrong um, but actually it didn't happen like that I don't know, I mean, we, we, we didn't have a vote on, on whether this was going to be a campaign or not um, I mean, my, my sense of the people who were in the room the, 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 there was a majority for, for, for having a campaign I mean, you know, it, was, it was an interesting, really interesting discussion One of the things I said back to Alan is are we brave enough so will Alan let the team decide on whether to become a campaigning organization or will he make a dictatorial call? And I'll leave you with that little cliffhanger there. Uh, you can go online to theguardian.com and find out and follow the, the rest of the, the episodes for the biggest story in the world. 
There's another seven uh, that have been released to date. They're up to number nine. Next up is Natasha Mitchell on the Tesla Powerwall battery. Some people turn up to the launch of an envelope. Others turn up to the launch of a battery. And who would have thought that the launch of a battery would cause such a stir as it did late last week in California? All right, uh, welcome everyone to basically the announcement of Tesla Energy. All right. So uh, what I'm going to talk about tonight is about a fundamental transformation of how the world works, about how energy is delivered uh, in, in the, in, across Earth. The issue with existing batteries is that they suck, okay? <laughs> They're really horrible. <laughs> They look like that. Uh, they're, they're, they're expensive, they, they're, they're, they're unreliable, they're, they're sort of stinky, ugly, bad in every way, um, very expensive. Uh, you have to get some sort of, uh, you know, you, you need to combine multiple systems. There's not one integrated uh, place you can go and buy a battery that just works, uh, which is what people really want to buy. So we have to, we have to come up with a solution. That, that, that's, the, that's the missing piece. That's the thing that's needed to, to have a proper transition to a sustainable energy world. So the missing piece is what we're going to show you tonight. Yes, Tesla, the company at the forefront of electric cars, launched a home battery that they're calling Powerwall last Thursday. This is considered a game changer for... Households, and you might be one of those households powering your home with solar panels, and also a game changer for renewable energy. Is this hype or is there truth to this? We're going to find out now. And joining me this morning is the editor of Climate Spectator, Tristan Edis, and the CEO of the Clean Energy Council here in Australia, Kane Thornton. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Tristan, what is this battery that Tesla has announced? Describe it. Uh, well, essentially, uh, it's it's possible that you could install um, this system for around uh, $10,000. And if you did the, the right actions in terms of also installing, you know, a, quite a reasonable size solar system, you get very close to the point where um, essentially you could... Uh, substantially reduce the need for, for, for grid infrastructure in Australia. It essentially means that the, the grid business or the network, the poles and wires business, is no longer um, needed to expand over time. It, it will only shrink over time. So it, it really does transform the way that we might look at how we, um, we, we plan our power system and the need for um, those poles and wires that go across our homes. Just to look at how the actual battery would work in a household, because, of, of course, it can store power, release power at different cycles, uh, peak, off-peak, peak. Just describe how that would work. So the, the thing that's important for your listeners to understand is electricity demand is, is incredibly variable over time. And so there are a very short, something like 25% of the capacity in, in the electricity network, which represents billions and billions of dollars of cost, is only used for um, a, a few hours in the year. And so with, with storage, what it enables you to do is to essentially remove a lot of that variability in your, your need for power mm. And, and essentially you use the, the battery instead to, to meet those, to, to level out those peaks and troughs. And it means the amount of power stations that we need and the, um, the amount of um, electricity wire infrastructure that we need is substantially reduced. Is it a game changer? It's at the point where the cost is low enough that it will be alluring to a large enough amount of people that it will build critical mass 
that then brings the cost reduction down to to your eye. So it's not quite the Model T Ford. I wouldn't say it's quite there yet, um, but it's on the cusp of that in, in terms of uh, opening up uh, this technology to the masses. They're not the only company involved in this technology, though, are they? They, they know how to host a, a fancy launch and to build the momentum. And, and uh, Elon Musk, the, the head of Tesla, renewable power billionaire, he... He, uh, he sort of fashions himself on a Henry Ford-type figure or an Edison-type figure. Yeah, yeah. But, um, look, the, the, the bottom line is the, the cost. So he is putting a price figure on his batteries. He's advertising it. He's saying, this is for sale today. Now, admittedly, there'll be a bit of hype there. I bet there'll be a very long waiting list before you can get your hands on the battery. Um, but he's... he's He's giving us the colour. He's showing us the colour of his money, and that is the big difference with everyone else. And with that particular price structure that he's given us, we can now look at it and think, "Oh, geez, that is really close to a point where, okay, you're not going to. It's not a, a fantastic financial return, but if you want to be at the leading edge of technology, if you want to disconnect from the grid, or you are upset with your utility and the way that they've behaved in the past." You um, and so you've got some you know, an element to which there's an emotional benefit there for you. Then then you will you will find this um, uh, an attractive proposition, and he's got it to that point where it's affordable. You know, someone could pay for this on their credit card. And the other thing is that he he is committed to open source patenting, and we might get to that. Kane Thornton, CEO of the Clean Energy Council, how do you read the announcement and the launch of this battery? Yeah, look, there's certainly a lot of lot of hype about it. And, sure and is. Understandable. <laughs> it was it's all over our social media feeds over the weekend. Yeah, no, no question. But uh, you know, I think I think what's really interesting is it, it is a sign of of what the future will look like, and it's it's something that has massive potential in Australia, given the way we use power, the way our electricity system is structured. But really, I mean, I think where where the where the real hype and the opportunity starts to become real is, as Tristan said, we now have a price point, and we now understand that this this technology is available, and it's available at a price that's essentially within reach and if we look sort at the of, from sort of sort well, of i mean they're charging you know three and a half thousand up to three and a half thousand for the battery itself but then of course those additional costs to get it to 10k is the installation sort of accessible yeah what, what, what's what's interesting though is the scale and mm. we we saw this with with solar power both globally and also here in australia which is the more of this stuff that you do, mm. the cheaper it becomes. And, and that's both the, the gadget itself, the, the black box that gets produced somewhere around the world, but it's also installing it and connecting it up into a house here in Australia. And so the more of it we do, the cheaper it'll become. And I guess what's surprising and really encouraging is the first price point for these units is um, is not that far out of out of reach, and as we do more of it, the costs are only going to go in one direction. Kane, if someone did buy this battery in Australia and wanted to come off the grid, they were self-sufficient with solar panels, they had this battery for storage, they didn't need to be hooked up to the grid, although we'll come back to that too, uh, you know, they, they can be self-sustaining. What regulatory barriers would be in place now in Australia? Yeah, look, it's an area that, that we're doing a lot of work on at the moment because I think it's fair to say, um, you know, while the technology is still at its early stages, there are some issues to work through and think through about, you know, how these units connect up to the electricity grid, you know, um, the safety, the end of life of these units, that type of thing. And so there's a lot of work that we're leading at the moment in that in that area. But, you know, I think the short answer is, um, right now, um, as you said, um, people could purchase one of these units, install them, and essentially disconnect themselves from the from the grid. I think I don't think we should overstate um, the rate at which people will do that. I'm sure there will be some people that would find that attractive, but equally, you know, the electricity grid is there. It gives us a level of um, reliability. It gives us a level of um, insurance, if you like. Um, and I think people will still find that attractive yeah. into, the, into the longer term. And the way they're explaining is uh, this, this battery is that it could, you know, you'd stay connected to the grid. It, it can store solar energy when the sun is shining. 
or it can charge itself from the grid in off-peak times where when power is cheaper. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, people will use these systems in different ways. And as Tristan said, you know, if you've, uh, if you've got a, a, a reasonably sized solar system, you'll use these units to really ensure that you take as little electricity from the grid. But for other people, they'll, they'll use it as a way to, you know, store their battery, for example, at the, the off-peak periods in the, in the middle of the night when power is at its cheapest. Um, and they'll they'll use the, the the stored energy from the battery at points in time in the day when electricity is the most expensive. Of course, um, within that there's there's a need for those consumers to be exposed to the different you know the, the different values and costs of electricity at different times of the day. Mm. And that's probably one of the areas of some you know regulatory reform and change that I think is is yet to to be fully you know achieved across the across the country but that will then help people really use these these types of systems much more effectively on life matters this morning we're talking about a, a battery yes a battery that uh, attracted a lot of attention when it was launched last week it's a, a battery that will allow you to store energy from solar power uh, solar panels in your house it means that you might it might actually make solar panels viable uh, and sustainable uh, in, in your house it might allow you to come off the grid altogether and store power locally. Tristan Edis, editor of Climate Spectator, um, although I read a really interesting analysis by a science journalist, American science journalist Chris Mooney, who said, you know, yes, the focus has been on home batteries with the Tesla story, that it might mean people can come off the grid, but in fact the biggest impact of the energy storage market could well be at the level of the wider electricity grid. That if we could store power on a large scale, renewable uh, energy uh, sourced power, that's where we really have success. Well, look, um, um, in my personal view is that... So I think one of the first things to keep in mind with this, the most revolutionary element with this particular technology at the price point it is already at, so this is before cost reductions, is that there are large swathes of rural areas across the whole of Australia which should be disconnecting from the grid. Now, the only reason they won't do that is because in the infinite wisdom of, 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 um, of our politicians, we believe that farmers should get subsidised electricity and uh, rural areas and so farmers would be subsidized to the tune of something like uh, two thousand to five thousand dollars per annum to be connected to the grid now this system fully installed with a situation where you could probably go off grid including the solar system might be twenty thousand dollars so you can see there uh, that there, there is a situation where this, this system, even ignoring the fact that it, it will achieve cost reductions in the future, should already be employed um, in, in Australia. But the other, I think, most, most revolutionary thing is, is there are large swathes of the world that don't have access to electricity right now, uh, areas of, of Africa and India. And... Uh, you now have a situation where they don't have grid infrastructure and they will look at that. They, they will say, well, I have to pay for that grid infrastructure. I could build a coal-fired power station, which has to be very large in order to be cheap, but I have to pay for all of this grid infrastructure. Mm. Now what I could do is it actually would be faster and cheaper for me to get uh, electricity to these people via using uh, uh, solar systems in conjunction with with um, the, these battery systems. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are actually relatively close to the point where that is a, a cheaper option now than, than going with the, the traditional centralised infrastructure. And that could mean, uh, you know, millions and millions of, of people, actually billions of people, could get access to electricity with all of the benefits that entails. Without the grid. You know. and, and the idea is that you could... Imagine that, millions and millions of people, if not billions of people, getting access to electricity through the sun. Lastly, tonight we have Beth Shepherd, who's bringing us the third in a series of three interviews she, she uh, undertook at the recent Climart exhibitions in Melbourne. This last piece is an interview with Laura Lantieri.
I'm Beth Shepherd, and today I'm taking you down Flinders Lane in Melbourne to the Arc One Gallery. We're going to go and check out an exhibition called The Significant Other, which is on as part of the Climart Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival. Let's get going. My name is Laura Lantieri and I'm the Senior Gallery Assistant here at Arc One Gallery in the city of Melbourne. The show we currently have on at the moment is called The Significant Other and we're exhibiting these works as part of the Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2015 festival run by Climart. Uh, we're very excited to have this show on uh, through the next month. It brings together a selection of our artists in the stable here who deal diversely with issues surrounding us, the environment and climate change. Can you talk about the, the name of the the exhibition the significant other is the significant other the environment or is it something else yes well in this context the significant other refers to the environment as this thing beyond us as humans on the planet so often the term is used for you know a partner or someone in your life who's really important but for us we have adopted the term to relate to the world around us basically the natural world and giving it the credit it's due in some respects. Maybe we can have a bit of a wander around and talk about some of the works. Do you have any particular pieces that stand out for you as being particularly significant in this exhibition? I think uh, given that we're talking about issues around the environment and climate change, uh, the biggest standout for me is Janet Lawrence because her practice forever essentially has dealt with issues around this. If we walk on down, I'll talk to you in more detail about this go down and have a look is this the piece with the video and the turtle yes so we have three works by janet lawrence in the show uh i'll get the titles for you this one here is called what a plant knows uh, it's from the tarkine in tasmania uh, this work here is for people listening is a multi-paneled photosynthesis work so janet works with a lot of color photographic images paints reflective materials like mirrors so there's a panel of seven, is it perspex or glass panels that are joined together and they've got lots of images of ferns and other green plants and mosses and things printed on them and some paint as well? That's right. So uh, Janet has printed on Duraclear in, on these and they're images of plant materials and flora taken from the Tarkine, which is an ancient forest in Tasmania, which itself is uh, in threat. So this work here is visually beautiful and it opens up. So the way Janet works is she, in these images, she fragments the nature in using a variety of materials and a lot of shadows. She often creates images through a process of veiling. And so what we get is a membranous space which opens us up into the image and gives us an idea of memory so, and also produces some slippages between what we see the reality and what we might lose so they're quite quite enigmatic in some ways sort of a 3d effect almost yeah that's right and if we look at the work immediately opposite in the space this work here is quite a beautiful installation of Janet's and it is called silence in the Umwelts, and it's a reconfiguration of a work she's previously done it stems from a residency that she did again in Tasmania the bottom layer of the work has images of butterflies and plant species on a metallic like paper and it's quite a large work isn't it, it? Is it's probably large. it's over three meters wide and approximately two meters high and she has literally veiled these images with a tulle like fabric and these then build up and to the tool she attaches plant specimens. So this work has come from, as I mentioned, a residency that she did in Tasmania in an area called the Skullbone Plains. And by collecting certain specimens, Jana often does this where she focuses on the ecologies in a certain area. And often her practice deals with our human interaction or how we interact with the environment around us. For Janet, this work is actually like a natural history piece. It's the, a lot of the 
found specimens uh, delicately sewn and pinned to the layers of tulle. What's really interesting about this work for me is that Janet was inspired by the very intricate uh, white spider webs that she found which pervaded this area that she went to. Can we go and have a look at this projection over in the corner here? This is one that's sort of a video work. It's a sort of circular screen surrounded by some scientific-looking beakers and other glass jar sort of shapes and tubes. Can, can you tell me a little bit about this one? Yeah, sure. So this work here is called Stranded. It's an installation that Janet's actually reconfigured from a previous work. It contains several perspex or acrylic boxes with mirrors and beakers, tubes, uh, things like crystals and more plant specimens. And the projection that's showing on the curved screen is of turtles. So it looks at marine turtles and in this installation, Janet's really interested in turtles as an ancient species. So they've lived, you know, for centuries and centuries beyond us, but yet they live in these very delicate environments and, and themselves are at risk of, of demise, I, I suppose. And there's some beautiful images of little baby ones trying to struggle and get into the water. Yes, that's right. Really beautiful baby turtles that are moving across the screen in her video work. Can we have a little bit more of a wander around? I was actually quite intrigued by these plastic bag images because up close they look like sort of a jumble of pieces of different coloured plastic um, intertwined but when you stand back they look like footprints to me. What's your interpretation? That's really interesting actually. These are two works by Huang Shu. Uh, He's a Chinese Australian artist who creates incredibly beautiful and lyrical large-scale photographs. And while he doesn't actually work with climate issues per se, these works we felt were incredibly fitting for the show because they have a like a double-edged sword, essentially. they really beautiful, but at the same time quite ominous and suggest this idea of threats to sea life. They look like seaweed from afar that's true Um, but at the same time they are degraded plastic bags which he's beautifully lit and intertwined into these incredibly pristine photographs so what's interesting here is that while we're on one hand we're lured into the work as these visual beautiful objects on the other hand they remind us that we have this incredible hunger for consuming and Uh, we are constantly threatening the environment around us. And what about the the very striking image in the corner of the gas-masked face with the wings coming out? It's kind of like a war picture, but it's very threatening, I don't know. What can you tell me about this work? This work's by an artist called Pat Brassington, who's one of Australia's preeminent photomedia-based artists. And like Wang Shu, she doesn't actually um, regularly deal with issues around climate change. However, this work we felt was absolutely perfect for the show. It represents a gas-masked face with what looks like the wings of a jet plane and a very dark charcoal-like haze surrounding it, almost consuming the image. Uh, What's important about Pat Brassington's work is that it's notoriously ambiguous so we never really know what the artist is representing Uh, however I think the the message in this work is fairly clear it's uh, we feel like it's a real punctuation mark to the show in that it's a premonition of what's to come Mm. you know there are two sides of the debate of course with climate change however we feel the science is irrefutable and what's happening around us is progressively getting worse and with this work which is black and white and a little well severely ominous I would say it um, seems to sum up the show quite nicely Mm, absolutely it's a very strong image so what do you think it is about art and visual art in particular that can connect people with ideas around environmental concerns 
I think art's a really important avenue through which to talk about anything that's worth talking about in life. Uh, in particular, it has a visceral effect. We can look at a piece of art or we can read a book and without sometimes even knowing why it moves us. It moves us into thinking differently or feeling differently. Sometimes it unsettles us. It puts us on edge. We walk away saying, I don't know why, but I didn't like that work. Regardless of whether we liked it or we didn't, it can affect perception and the way we think and feel and ultimately sometimes the way we act. I believe it was Gough Whitlam who said cultured societies are educated societies and art is a very important part of culture and education in my view. What do you sort of hope that people that come along to the exhibition walk away with? Well this exhibition as much as it highlights the issues around climate change and the things that we stand to lose it also is a very strong celebration of what we have as a tiny planet in the universe I think you'll notice the large photographic work at the end of the space by Murray Fredericks. Mm, it's glorious. Can we go down and have a bit of a closer look? Absolutely. So this is a quite a large piece of art, probably a couple of metres wide um, and maybe a metre tall. It is a photographic print. So this is a part of uh, Murray Fredericks' wider series called Salt. And this has basically entailed Murray going out to the remote area of Lake Eyre in South Australia. And he's been there several times now. And he'll go for weeks on end with himself, a tent and a bike and his camera. And he waits for moments in time and space to capture these incredible scenes. And these are quite, this is a very new work of his and he has captured about 2am in the night and he's captured the scene essentially the universe like we can't see it normally in the work we see the Milky Way but it's quite colourful there's these beautiful amber orange tones, purples that we see through it and it's quite interesting because some people ask why there are so many colours in the Milky Way in Murray's photograph when normally our eyes only see black and white at night time and it's actually that during the day, the retina of our eye senses red, green and blue, whereas at night we only see black and white. Uh, however, the camera doesn't change, so it picks up these tones in the colour spectrum. And we have this incredible result with this work. So that about wraps it up for the show tonight. The la that last piece was uh, Beth Shepherd interviewing Laura Lantieri. Clearly the climb art uh, has, uh, the exhibition has finished. Um, that was about an intersection between art and climate disruption. But uh, thanks very much to Beth for bringing us those interviews. And prior to that we had uh, the Guardian piece, which you can also find online along with its eight uh, sister podcasts and also an interview from Natasha Mitchell uh, in uh, relation to the Tesla announcement of a battery which may change energy consumption as we have known it for many decades now.